0: The UK's 160 native breeds of cattle, sheep, pigs, goats, equines and poultry, bred over centuries, are already adapted to our varied regional landscapes and offer valuable traits for lower input farming systems. They show increased longevity compared to larger continental breeds, tend to give birth with minimal intervention and often display greater resilience to endemic pests and diseases. The UK's native breeds are also an important part of our national identity and heritage, representing a unique piece of the Earth's biodiversity. But according to the UK National Breed Inventory 2020, almost 80% of the UK's native livestock breeds are currently at risk of extinction. In this podcast, we explore whether farmers struggling in volatile times can look to reverse this trend while lowering their costs and improving the environment. I'm Abby Kay, Head of News at Farmers Guardian, and I'm handing over to Jez Fredenberg to find out more.
1: Did you know the School of Sustainable Food and Farming has announced a £50,000 prize pot for farmers who are trying to develop sustainable farming practices? The Journey to Net Zero competition wants to support farmers who are planning to implement a scalable, sustainable farming system or process that will have a positive and measurable impact on how they farm. Grants of between £5,000 and £20,000 are available and you have until the 30th of September to enter online. The competition is being supported by Brantford Estates, Harper Adams University, McDonald's, Morrison's, the NFU, Trinity AgTech, and Trinity Global Farm Pioneers.
0: With our
2: own ambition set for a net zero target by 2030. Harper Adams University is really looking forward to seeing the ideas for adoption and implementation of innovation that this competition will generate. We are delighted to have come together with industry partners to offer this opportunity to our farming community and wish all applicants the best of luck.
1: To find out more and to enter, visit www.fginsight.com forward slash net zero competition. Entries close on September 30th, 2022.
2: Hello everyone. Now, regenerative farming is all about finding a system that works with the natural resources on your farm part of that must surely be the livestock themselves our native breeds were bred over centuries to do well with minimal inputs on landscape specific to each region so as we look to create more sustainable low input low cost systems with healthy animals should we be looking more to what our native breeds can offer here to talk about this more is rob havard and christopher price Rob is an ecologist and sixth generation farmer in Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. His family runs Fets and Angus, producing pedigree Aberdeen Angus breeding cattle with a focus on animals that are low maintenance, high fertility, and excellent forage converters. His bulls are never fed grain, and Rob keeps an organic, holistic grazing system. He's also currently undertaking a Nuffield scholarship to investigate beef cattle selection for profitability in grass fed production systems. Systems. Chris is the Chief Executive of the Rare Breed Survival Trust, the UK's leading charity working to monitor, save and promote our UK native breeds of livestock. Currently, RBST works to protect over 150 individual breeds from nine different species and is aiming to get government to recognise the importance of livestock genetic diversity as a fundamental element of agricultural and biodiversity policy. Chris, can you please set the scene for us a little bit? You know, what is the current makeup of um, of the UK UK herd in terms of breeds, and and how does that compare to what it might have been, say like a hundred years ago or something?
3: Well, according to um, BMS figures, around twenty seven percent of the national herd are limousines, then seventeen percent Angus, and then it's Charolais and Simmentals at around twelve percent and Hereford's at 8%, 8%. And that's been relatively unchanged for the last 10 years or so. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, is the uh, change in the number of registrations. Over that period, we've seen a decline in the number of continental breeds being registered, or continental animals being registered, and an increase in the, in the number of natives. I think we would have seen some significant differences, I mean 100 years ago we had way more dual and maybe triple use animals, you know Welsh Blacks, South Devons, Gloucesters were all used for at least two functions um, in a way that we don't see so much now, animals are either generally uh, meat or dairy, sometimes uh, known for their grazing. Uh, there was much more local connections, you know, Gloucester cattle were associated with Gloucestershire, Herefords, Herefords were associated with Herefordshire. Um, we don't get that so much now. In the main, most of the breeds are spread fairly evenly across the countryside. That's not absolute, but it's it's true to a much larger extent. Also, I guess there was less incentive to finish cattle early. You know, now we're all told we have to get things finished within 24 months. That just wouldn't have been an issue uh, 100 years ago.
2: Rob I want to want to bring you in because this this feels like a good a good chance to, to ask your opinion on this um why do you think it's so important to have the right genetics in the right farming system
4: um I think for us it's probably best to talk about why we choose the cattle we do for our system um and then you know that works for us and then you know if it works for other people that's great I think for me, it's, you know, we try and do everything within the bounds of what the environment can produce. And so the environment can produce a certain number of calories, if you like, or a certain amount of protein or metabolizable energy or whatever. And, you know, there's a maximum to that, but there's also a cost if you want to produce more of it in your environment using inputs and fertilizers and whatever. So it's basically coming down to, you know, we're an organic system um, and we want to produce what nature produces and then maximise production from that or maximise profit from that. Um, if you've got an animal that has been bred to have uh, a productive requirement, so you know performance of that animal requires more energy than the environment can produce, then you're going to have to provide that energy, either through growing more forage or feeding it, bringing in feed from outside the farm. Um, and that those are all costs that you've got to factor in. And I think what we're seeing is input costs at the moment, in particular, going up and up and up. So whilst prices have been pretty good and going up, so have costs been going up as well. So the margins haven't really been changing. So for us, if we can keep uh, our costs level, um, so that they're not going up, because you know we're on the minimum cost, just what the environment can produce itself, and then we've got an animal that can um, can do that for us. Then when the price goes up, we get a bigger margin. And and for us, that's You know that's one of the key things in terms of profitability. The other side of it is from the environmental angle: is our cows, by definition, you know they have they have lower energy requirements, partly because they are small, slightly smaller animals. Um, And then I think it's not just about saying that you've got the perfect genetics for whatever system; it's about matching that. So for a lot of our customers of our pedigree bulls, they'll be using our bulls to breed their replacements, and then so for their female lines. And then they might use a really a very different genetic line. They might use a terminal Angus, high growth Angus with high energy requirements for um, for the terminal line to get high growth in the calves. So that when they're, if they're selling store cattle then the finishers are getting the growth rates they need. So it's mixing and matching the genetics that fit the environment and fit the customers that you have as well. Um, I think the key thing for us is that there's no such thing as an animal that can do everything. You know, some people, will be great at marketing and they'll talk about how you know their cows will grow the most, they'll produce the most milk, but they'll also eat the least. And, you know, anyone who did physics at GCSE or A-level knows that that's not true. There's a limit to... You know, you can't just make energy out of nothing. If you put another requirement in, then that has to be an energy source for that. Um, And I think, you know, these cows that will do everything for you, you you know, they'll even do your accounts and fix your fence for you if you (laughs) believe them. Um, You know, but the reality is it's an old idea that a cow uh is a female line is different to a terminal line and and you know the, the hybrid vigor that was used in the past um and then using terminal size these are old ideas and I, I just think if we for us it's a case that we're very much focused on the feminine maternal line um and then it complements the the terminal breeders complement that and i think that works well within the whole industry throughout the system then
2: Absolutely. So, um, I mean, it it sounds like you're saying, you you know, in order to do that and sort of mix and match and and build a breed that works best for you, you've got to have um, a good range, haven't you, of genetics to choose from. So, Chris, if we go back to native breeds and and rare breeds in, in particular, you know, why is it so important that we have those those rare breeds still and what what do their genetics kind of offer us when we're talking about like like robbers you know about taking a sort of bit from here a bit from there and sort of trying to really really like build up a breed that works works for you
3: well in terms of um, why we should be Um, conserving native breeds and I must say I prefer to use the phrase native breeds rather than rare breeds. If we talk about rare breeds it sounds as though we're celebrating their uh, their scarcity. We ought to be celebrating their their attributes. Um, But in terms of why they matter, well I think there's a, a number of reasons I mean, perhaps the first is the most basic. Uh, They're part of our biodiversity. Um, You wouldn't always know it from the way that some organisations talk. But under the Convention of uh, Biodiversity Convention and the Sustainable Development Goals, native livestock are part of biodiversity and worthy of conservation in the same way as their their wild counterparts. And the obligations on government to save them are, are much the same. But then there are the more practical considerations. I mean, as as Rob has explained, most native livestock, well, all native livestock, uh, were bred to uh, thrive in certain parts of our of our landscape. In most cases, they can be kept outdoors on grass. Uh, if they're at the appropriate density, there should be little need for uh, vet and med uh, attention. So the input costs can be much lower than with continental um, can- with, than with their continental counterparts and on the other side of the equation if the farmer gets their their marketing right um, emphasizing provenance uh, lower environmental footprint generally um, higher welfare standards generally um, a, a premium can be charged which can make make all the difference and you know the way that farming is going it's' imperative on farmers to start looking for new ways of doing things, to find new new USPs. It may not be for everyone, um, but those farmers who are going to make a go of it going forwards need to start thinking in this more um, entrepreneurial way, as as Rob is clearly doing. There are also the, the public benefits of, of our native breeds. You know, um, we talk a lot about conservation grazing if we want to preserve the the habitats that we cherish, then what better to use than the animals that created them? You know, um, many of our habit, habitats were, came into being because they were grazed by certain animals in certain ways. If we want to conserve them, then what better than using those animals? Also, I think there's a strong cultural uh, historical connection. As I've said, you know, Gloucester cattle were bred to Work for the people of Gloucester, Hereford are the same in the Lake District. There is a huge connection between the breeds of sheep that, in many cases, the Vikings brought over because they worked in that landscape, uh, and the farmers who succeeded them. So
2: there's very much a, a cultural heritage here as well, isn't there? Um, which I think isn't, yeah, it's is an element we we probably don't talk about that much. Um, do you think we've we've lost anything by by sort of going down this much much more narrow um, Specialised, if I can use that word, root in terms of our in terms of the breeds that we do use.
3: Yes, I think we um, made a mistake, and not just in this regard, in, in many regards, by opting for much more intensive industrial approaches to farming in the post-war years. You know, we decided that we needed to have um, bigger, faster-growing animals, and the only way we could do that was by importing things that were bred for very different landscapes in in mainland Europe and feeding the animals in artificial feed, keeping them at densities that I think we would query from a welfare point of view and running up massive vet and med bills. Um, And the problem was that too many farmers started focusing on the the weight at sale and getting the top prices without really looking into the costs that went with that. And um, actually, as Rob has noted, that um, many of our native breeds can be kept quite cheaply because they were they were bred to be kept in our in our landscape without the need for these massive artificial inputs.
2: Mm. And I think this is a really key point, actually, because this is a kind of reframing, isn't it? It's a, it's a sort of change in the way that, that we understand profitability, really. Um, Rob, are you seeing a, so different types of, of customers coming forwards now, you know, and sort of really wanting to talk to you also ab- about this sort of cost element?
4: Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the impact of the increases in input costs is, is sharpening people's uh, pencils on that front. And they're looking for a low cost cow. You know, and essentially, that's that's what we we do is we want a bulletproof cow that has no problems, that she can live within her, her environment without too much extra feed or extra inputs or vet med, as Chris was saying, um and and I think that with the volatility around the market, like we just don't know what's happening on subsidy support, we just don't really know what's happening on environmental support at the moment. Um so what brass price prices have gone up, but the costs have gone up massively, and then so that's definitely brought people to us. And then you know, and we had we had some big herds, some real big commercial people coming to us as a we had a customer came and bought four bulls off us who uh, they run 800 sucklers, uh, suckler cows in their operations. It's a huge commercial operation. They they were running big cows to produce big calves. And it's simply, uh, even at that scale, it simply wasn't um, wiping its feet. And so they're looking for a smaller cow, which they can then, uh, once they've got the replacements, put a terminal sire on and get something, you know, that still meets market requirements. Something that Chris was saying as well is in terms of what we need in terms of production and, and noting the cost of getting that highest price calf in market as well we 've really noticed that people have, have twigged that it 's not about the highest price calf in market it 's about the number of calves you get there, so fertility's massive. the number of weaned calves per cow to the bull is huge, and you know if the if a cow's struggling within her environment and she 's got higher pr- maintenance costs and maintenance requirements, then she's less likely to be fertile and in calf and, and catch first cycle and all of that stuff. You know, because the difference between her catching in the first 21 days in the first cycle and her hitting in the, in the, at the end of the third cycle uh, or fourth cycle even, which you see quite often, um, you know, it could be a hundred days difference in age of the calf. So that's a hundred kilos uh, potentially of at a kilo a day of growth rate that you've lost just because of that fertility thing. So I think, yeah, for for all of these reasons, people are having to sharpen up, and uh, yeah, we're definitely seeing more of it. The other thing we're seeing is obviously with regenerative agriculture um whatever name you want to call it which is basically you know a mainstreaming of organic farming Uh, and that's that's becoming more and more popular the low cost aspect but also the sense of you know we live in an age where we've got all this um you know these meat alternatives if you want to call them that the vegan products and things like that so these are genuine threats to the industry and it's never been more important for all of us to demonstrate the environmental credentials of our industry and so I think partly that's one of the reasons people have pushed towards this, but also just there's an element of, coming back to what you were saying about, you know, the the cultural element of these breeds, um, you know, a sense of place. A sense of who is responsible for the stewardship of this land. And I'm a firm believer that family farms, it's us, we should be responsible for stewarding this land. So we take responsibility for the environmental outcomes. We take responsibility for having, you know, improving the biodiversity and the water quality and, you know, making sure there's no pollution incidents and all of that stuff. And that's driving people into this sector. It's getting people more interested in farming, local food. And all of that, you know, that's helping our business. But I think, you know, if we are working towards all these shared goals, it's helping our environment, it's helping our local communities. And it's also helping the industry in terms of, you know, our reputation to customers and, and communities across the country.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I know, Rob, you've been doing a, a Nuffield, haven't you? Looking at all of this as well. Um, have you Have you started yet? Have you travelled anywhere yet or...?
4: Yeah. yeah, we we I've done some uh, travel in the UK and I've uh, done quite a lot of linking up because obviously initially with COVID and everything, travel was quite difficult, um, but done quite a lot of linking up online, Zoom calls and everything, and we've got some more travel planned later. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's been fascinating. We're looking at sort of the genetics for grass-fed production in cattle, essentially, in beef cattle. Um, and it's just fascinating to see actually in you know obviously we're at the regenerative angle but i went up to scotland and spent a week up there and and um and it just to see how many people are going down this road to see the amount of innovation someone was messaging me this morning they'd had their local environmental recorders group counting butterflies beetles all the stuff on a farm and it's, this is now just mainstream this is just what farmers do and more and more people are talking about it on Twitter. And you know, I don't know why people seem to love getting into arguments on Twitter, but there's so much <laughs> positive stuff going on. And I just keep seeing all this stuff. I just think it's fabulous. And for consumers and people seeing this move in agriculture, which hasn't really come from policy, this is absolutely from the ground up. Farmers want to do this. They're taking responsibility, recording the wildlife. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's just so inspiring to see this move. And um, so that's the real positive. And then the other side of it is, I'm going out to Argentina in the autumn and, and Uruguay and, and um, we've got uh, a customer who's who's bought some of our genetics and exporting it over to Argentina over there. He runs about 3000 pedigree red Angus cows there. Um, and then there's a, another friend of his who runs 20,000 cows. And just the scale of these operations is just beyond. I mean, they're all over their numbers. They're all over their figures. They're producing on grass, outwintered, and actually in not too dissimilar uh, environment to us over here. Um, but the interesting thing is they are not going for the high growth EBVs. They're not going for that. They're going for low maintenance, low cost cows producing as many calves as they can with low impact on the ground. And, you know, these are serious businesses that dwarf pretty much anything you see over here. And yet these are the genetics they're choosing. And, and that's just fascinating. And I, I can't wait to get over there in October and, and go and visit and, and maybe, hopefully, not fall off a horse while I'm going around <laughs> checking the cattle.
2: That all sounds really exciting. Oh my gosh! Where, where else are you planning to go, and what are you what are you going to be looking at in these different places?
4: Well, somewhere else, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, Zimbabwe, and um, we're going to visit the uh, the Africa Centre for Holistic Management in Zimbabwe, which Alan Savory set up and then a few farms out there um they have much tougher conditions and so for them achieving high fertility rates out there can be a real challenge with the tick-borne diseases and and the low quality forage and potential droughts how they manage their forage and their cattle and there's a guy called johan zeitzman in zambia so we're going to go and visit uh, go out to zambia as well um and he Uh, selecting on purely on fertility in these really tough environments and just to learn about you know how they've had to fit the cow to the environment for maximum profitability where they maybe can't afford all the inputs they've just got to produce calves from the forage they've got uh, from native forage and and just seeing how they've done that balance is going to be fascinating And, and hopefully then we'll be able to apply that over here.
2: That is really interesting. I'm sure you'll you'll get some real insights there. Um, Chris, do you think um, do you think we can learn anything from anywhere else in the world regarding this? You know, regarding making making the most of our native breeds.
3: Yes, I mean the phenomenon that Rob has described with regenerative agriculture and the use of native breeds within it um, isn't uh, purely an English or UK thing by by any means. No, there's an equivalent organisation to RBST in most of most European countries, and indeed in the states and Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and we all talk to each other, and it's all all going in the same direction, which is what makes it um, so exciting. Um, but if I could pick up on a couple of points that that Rob mentioned. Rob warned about the threat of vegetarianism and veganism. Um, I really don't think that we should regard it as a threat. I think we should look at it as as an opportunity. You know, I mean, people aren't going to choose to stop eating meat anytime soon, and nor are, is any government going to ban eating meat anytime soon. But many of the concerns that vegans and vegetarians raise about you know, welfare, environmental footprints, um, the harm to biodiversity, climate, etc. Um, do have um, a lot of merit to them and I think the uh, opportunity for us is to note that, yes, 90% of what you're saying is correct but we can provide an an opportunity, an alternative. Our animals are kept outdoors, on grass, high welfare standards. We are ticking most of the boxes you express concern about and also what we are talking about has actually got a chance of happening. What the vegan vegetarian lobby Um, Are talking about is never going to happen. You have this sort of sense of um, purity of perfection, but it's it's unreal. Far better to be a bit more pragmatic and all work together to have farming systems in which animals do have a a good life and a good death. Mm -hmm. The other point I think is that, uh, as Rob said, most of this, if not all of this, is coming is ground up. That's what makes it so exciting, and it's. A lot of it is, is people coming new into farming, having, not coming from farming backgrounds. They've done something else. They know how to run a business. They know how to write a business plan, um, how to manage cash flow, et cetera. And they're applying their um, skills to, to farming and approaching it in quite an objective way. And if you're not sort of hamstrung by your parents' or grandparents' approach, it's easier to come to the view, I think, that um, regenerative systems make more sense but that's not to say there's no role for, for government in in some of this we've talked a bit about um elm and what that'll look like and certainly in england it's incredibly frustrating how slow this is going compare for example with wales where they've rolled out the most perfect um, scheme to encourage regenerative agriculture and recognizing the role of native livestock but i think no, one of the big issues that could make things or knock things off course to a huge extent is the state of the local abattoir network you know if you talk to government they will say that overall capacity is fine because there are enough spaces in the system for everything that needs to be killed and processed which is probably true but unless you have an abattoir which is not too far away which is willing to take small numbers of non-standard animals return the fifth quarter and your fifth quarter um then your business is stymied and the rate at which local abattoirs are closing, it's about 10 a year, and I would suspect it's increased this year and the rate of previous years, um, then we really are going to hit a logjam. And if no, there was anything that needs to be doing, it is sorting out the off-farm side of the sector.
2: Mm. Yes, and I think there's, you, you raise a good point. There's a real case, isn't there, for um, really developing local food systems. And within that, you know, you make use of, like like you just said, the the, the native breeds that are more appropriate to that region, but you also have to build that infrastructure to be able to process them. Um, I know. I know. Another thing you you sort of mentioned earlier, Chris, before we were recording, was um, how native breeds can be used in other ways as well. Can you just tell us a little bit about your your thoughts on that?
3: My point was, it's not just about the genetics that can be shifted around to improve various breeds. It's about um, native breeds being bred to meet particular human needs in particular landscapes so like we know we have Gloucester cattle in Gloucestershire and in the Lake District we have uh, um, herdwicks which were bred to live at the top of the mountain, swaledales which work a bit further down the mountain, those sort of systems. It was the desire in the post-war years to um, interfere with that more naturalistic approach that had created many of the problems with intensive industrialized farming that we're having to, to put right now.
4: It's interesting on that point as well, I think, that if you look at the UK as as in terms of its productive capacity, yes, we've got some really nice productive land, but in terms of world production, we are tiny. We're a tiny, tiny country. And and so if you think about what we have, we've got this green and pleasant land, which incredible meadow land with incredible wildlife, incredible wildflowers if we look after them. And so the potential for us to market what we do in the UK as kind of the the gold standard in environmental but also in terms of food quality and food production and what we do here i think there's such a huge potential there and i think You know, I know farmers are renowned in this country for perhaps not working together as well as they could, but there are organisations that are bringing people together for this sort of more high-quality pastoral-type production systems. So I'd encourage everyone to try and just to find out a little bit more about organisations like, for example, the obviously you've got Rare Breed Survival Trust with Chris, but the Pasture for Life and Pasture-Fed Livestock Association, Pasture for Life brand is well worth looking at. It's such a fast growing organisation doing amazing things all over the country. They've got advisors around the country that are helping people running events. So you can learn about these systems, but also helping people get products to market. And also their certification schemes for butchers, for restaurants, but also for producers and farmers. And I think there's a huge potential if you work together on this for UK production to be seen as this environmental, but also food standard gold standard in the in the world production for our exports and potentially we can all get a higher price for the quality we're producing then i
3: awesome. think that's absolutely spot on um you know going forward outside the eu without production subsidies we're kidding ourselves if we think we're going to be able to trade on global commodity markets far better to exploit all the factors that rob has just said that that must be the way forward for for many farmers
2: guys thank you i think we're going to leave it there unless there's any you've got any burning points that you want to make.
3: be interested to know whether um, the reduced carbon footprint of Rob's farming methods offsets the amount of carbon that's going to be released through flying to uh, Argentina and Zimbabwe.
2: That's so cheeky, Chris.
4: (laughs) Obviously, Chris. Obviously, I've worked it all out. It's absolutely fine. uh, I'm in carbon (laughs) credit. (laughs) I just have to take on some degraded arable land and turn it back to wild flying. That's all done (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, and a big thank you to Rob and Chris there for all their insights and being just generally good sports and all of this. Um, you'll be able to find more of their insights in a written feature on this topic in fg and online very soon in our next episode though on regenerative farming i'll be talking to caroline Grindod, a regenerative agricultural consultant at wilder culture about biodiversity and how farmers can manage the complexity that this brings to their systems that will be on the 30th of september so remember to tune back in for then until then
0: see you next time that's it for this week's over the farm gate if you enjoyed this episode please do rate and review on your preferred platform so we can help attract new listeners and don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's farmer's guardian where we dedicate six pages to exploring the queen's farming legacy until next week from us at fg thank you for listening